0: Well, listen, um, as you saw in the beginning of the service, there's a lot of text to be able to cover, all right? So what I want to do is I want to make sure that I have the shortest introduction as possible because we want to have time to really camp out in the text and unpack all of that that's going on. And, uh, and, and so let me just say this before we begin, before we jump in, uh, let me just make one point that I think is going to help us not only for tonight, but I think it's going to help us with the coming sermons throughout the book of Judges. Uh, what I want us to understand is that all of these stories in the book, all these different stories about all the different judges, uh, all of them share primarily the same theme all the way throughout. Uh, Almost all of them have the theme of salvation, all right, at it. You may have picked up on that so far. If you've been here the last couple weeks, it seems like, okay, what's the point? Salvation. What's the next point? Salvation. More specifically, it's about a gracious God saving undeserving people. And we see it time and time and time through the book. So, some people would say, and this is why I think pastors don't preach through a book like Judges is because they sound a little bit redundant as they're preaching through it. And some might even be thinking, well, Mike, if they're all about salvation, can't we just preach about one of the judges and then move to one of the other books? Why do we have to keep going from judge to judge? Well, let me say this. I think an important reason is is because even though all of them share in kind of this common theme of salvation, each one of them bring a unique understanding and a unique truth about who this God is that saves us. So every story gives us a little bit different glimpse and a little bit better picture of who the God who graciously saves undeserving people And it gives us better insight for our need for that gracious God. So keep that in mind as we work through uh, this passage this morning and for the weeks to come. We want to see more of what is this God like and what are we like in the fact that we are in such great need to be saved. So let me show you three things in the text this morning that we're going to camp out on. First of all, what we see in our text is the need of God's people, We see the need of God's people. And we're going to see two specific needs. The first one is our need to respond. Now, this story is going to start just like so many of the other ones have uh, uh, up to this particular point in the first three chapters. It's going to begin with this vicious, sinful cycle that God's people keep finding themselves in. Notice if you will follow along in verse 1. The Bible says, "...in the people of Israel again..." did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoim, And it says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he, notice this, he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, that last sentence, the author is trying to let us know something. He's letting us know as much as God's people have suffered up to this point, it's nothing like they're suffering now. This man, this pagan king, is cruel in everything that he's doing to God's people, and he's been cruel for a period of 20 years. Now, the saddest part of God's people's suffering is that it never had to happen. It could have been avoided. Altogether, Have you ever done something you're like, oh, had I just not jumped off that bridge as a teenager? You know, you, you, you're like, if I could just go back. Well, they didn't have to suffer this way. All the suffering could have been avoided. Here's why. Because here we see that they're suffering under the hand of a king who has 900 iron chariots. This isn't the first time we heard about the people with the iron chariots. We were first introduced to them back in chapter one. In chapter one, in verse 19, the Bible said, and the Lord was With Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had, guess what? Iron chariots or chariots made of iron. When we studied that back in chapter one, we found out that it wasn't so much that they couldn't drive the people of Canaan out who had the iron chariots. It wasn't that they couldn't, it's more of that they wouldn't. God was with them, God promised them the victory, they just had the faith to follow through. Well, guess what? They didn't. They didn't have the faith to follow through. Fear took the best of them. Uh, They were passive in their faith towards God. And here's what they did. God gave them a clear command. They rejected it. They just kind of pushed it over to the side. God's challenging them with something. It was going to be difficult to be able to fight them, but they just take God's command and what God's calling them to do and just kind of ignore it a little bit. They just push it over to the side, just kind of sweep it underneath the carpet. Then they believe that they can continue in a right relationship with God, even though they were they were disobedient to what God was calling them to do in the past. But what they found out now in this particular generation is that whenever we push something off that God is telling us to do in the past, we're guaranteed to see it in the future. The difference is it's a lot worse in the future. It may be challenging at the present, but when we push it off and later on when it comes up in our history and confronts us again, it becomes more oppressive. Let me kind of give you an example of this. Um, My wife and I, uh, when we got out of seminary, we were poor. We were poor in seminary. We were poor after seminary. Uh, I mean, poor, all right? So we wanted to buy a house and... From American perspective. All right, let's just be real. All right, so we wanted to buy a house. We were in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, where you never want to live, just to let you know. Um, lived there, and we couldn't find a house that we really liked. So we found this fixer-upper. It was about 80 years old. And if you guys know me, I have no right or reason To buy a fixer-upper, okay? I can't fix anything. So we wanted to buy it, and it seemed like God was really working this out. You know, my wife was like, that's the one. We love it. That's the one that we want to have. And I said, okay, we'll go ahead and do it. Now, we made a mistake. Don't ever make this mistake. Hindsight. Um, We didn't have anybody come and check it out, uh, you know, because we wanted to save the $300. All right. Seemed wise at the time. We could save three hundred dollars, and so the man was so nice, though, that was selling the house. He said, "Listen, come. You know, you can you can stay in the house and, and just just see if you like it, and then if you want to buy it, uh, you go ahead and buy it." And well, we felt bad about that, but he let us stay in like a full month and a half, and we didn't even pay any rent. We were just living there. We said, "Okay, look, we'll buy it. We got to make the decision." But in that first month and a half, we kind of recognize that there might be something wrong. You ever get that feeling? Something may not be wrong here. That's a little bit smell of mildew and moldish smell that keeps coming. Every time the air conditioner comes on, I smell mold. What is that? I know in my mind that something's wrong with this, right? But what do I do? I push it to the side and ignore it. Why? I don't want to confront this really nice man who's letting us stay here for free. You guys understand the dilemma, right? And we think, how bad can it possibly be, right? And so what do we do? We, 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 we wait, we sign the paperwork. Immediately afterwards, we find what it is, Animals, which will go unnamed, got underneath the house, it was where we had a crawl space, and tore to shreds all of the ductwork out underneath the house. Some of them were not even connected, and, and they had kind of bedded in, water had gotten in, and it was all filled of mildew. The guy comes back and says, listen, the best price we can give you, maybe $5,500 to $7,500 for you to fix this. Now, you get the point, right? In the past, I was visited with a challenge I didn't want to deal with. I pushed it off. But what became a problem or a challenge now becomes $7,500 worth of oppression. You got it? You say, what's the spiritual point? Here it is. When God begins to speak to you like he did with the people here, he's expecting you. He's calling you. He's demanding of you and I to deal with the issue that he's exposing in our life. When he speaks to you, and the Holy Spirit begins to move inside of your heart, whether it's through the reading of the word or whether it's through the preaching of the word, and you begin to become convicted, and the Holy Spirit is working on you, saying, look, this needs to change. What God is doing is graciously saving you from oppression. He's trying to get you to do something that's very, very difficult for you to relent and deal with that sin issue then because if you don't and if you ignore it, I guarantee it's gonna pop up another time. You know, there are folks all the time that I'll hear and I'll be discipling and they'll say things like, man, I just feel like God's, I know that God's really been telling me that I need to take more of a biblical approach to my finances. I, they're all out of whack. We're in debt. We're not, we're not given the way that we should. We're, we're just, it, we're just a, a wreck. And I go, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'll get around to it someday. And for that person, I know, I tell them, you need to work now. I know it's challenging now. But if you don't take hold of this, I guarantee this little problem is eventually going to oppress you more than you could ever imagine in the future. It's the same thing with men that want to lead their families. And, and, and we put a huge emphasis on that, is men, lead your families. Teach your kids the word of God. Teach them the gospel when, when they're at a young age. Teach them as much as you can about the word. Because if you don't now, as, they're pressing, as, as their, their minds are, are open to the word of God, guess what? At one particular point, you're going to be oppressed by the decision and your disobedience guess why? When when you eventually want to share the word of God, they may reject it altogether. So the Bible says immediately what the Israelites need, what we need, is we need to respond immediately to the Lord when he begins to work. Second thing that we see is we see a need for true salvation, true authentic salvation. Now notice, uh, if you will, the very first part of that verse again in verse one. It says, "And the people of the Lord again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice this, after Ehud died. So so they do everything right while Ehud's around, but as soon as he leaves, they begin to rebel and do what's wrong again. Now, this is a principle that was laid out for us in chapter two and verse 19. Listen to it there. Uh, The author writes, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going, he says, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. All of these judges in Israel really work as a preserving or a, a, a pressurized system to keep the people in check. Their existence, their very presence kept the people and put enough pressure on them to do what was right before God. But the moment that the judge was taken away, the people began to show their true colors and they begin to sin against God once again. It would be similar to this, I guess. Again, I I told you my first house. Now let me tell you about my first job. I worked at a car wash for my first job all right? Uh, Liberty Car Wash in Bradenton, Florida. I was all excited. I thought I was so cool swinging the towel around, and so I had the job, and this is what my dad did. My dad was really big on work ethic. I don't know how y'all's dads were, but he was like, man, if you're going to work, you need to be a good worker. If you're going to go there, I don't want you embarrassing me. I want you to go, and I want you to work hard, and this is what he would say. I want you to work hard when the boss is there, and I want you to work hard when the boss is not there. When he's looking, and when he's not looking, here was his saying, if they pay you for eight hours, you better do eight hours of work. Now, that was what he taught me. Apparently, the other kids I worked with didn't get that memo and lesson from their parents. Because when our, when our manager, Corey, was around, they worked like crazy. The moment that Corey wasn't around, he, guess what? They weren't working at all. They were smoking, not working. So he, he really served as this kind of preserving pressure uh, presence that would keep them doing what was ultimately right. Spiritually, let me give you an example of this. It's kind of like the young man that grows up in church that everybody respects and everyone looks at and all the moms look at and say, I, would, I hope that my daughter will marry a young man like that. He grows up in the church and everybody thinks he, he, he might even speak. He, he, leads, uh, he, he leads trips and everybody looks at him in school as a leader. and Everybody thinks he's great. He goes off to college and he loses his ever-loving mind right? And he rebels against God, and he does everything that he wasn't previously doing when he was in the church. And so how do you explain that? People will say things like this. People will say, man, he has changed radically. And my answer to that always is, he didn't change at all. That's the same young man as he was when he was in the church, but the only thing was he had the restraining presence and pressure from the church, from his faith family, from his parents, and from his peers. What he simply did is he was removed from that pressure. Now he's somewhere that he's willing and he's free to be who he truly is, and now he's ultimately living it up. Do you see that? Listen, one of the dangerous places for you to be, and this is not good for trying to start a third service and get people to come to your church, but, but, but church is an incredibly dangerous place to be, incredibly dangerous. It's, danger, it's, it's dangerous for all of us, including myself, and some of you are nudging, and some disgruntled man is going, see, I told you, this was not a good idea, right? But here's why it's so dangerous. Let me, let me just say why it's dangerous for me. Every week, um, I'm in the Word of God, praying, studying the Word of God, trying to lead people, trying to counsel people through what the Word of God would ultimately say, The real danger for me is to put on a face and to be something and teach things that's not truly who I ultimately am. But I'm acting a certain way and living a certain way because of the pressure of the position and because of the pressure of you looking to me for answers. Do you see the danger there? The danger is there for you as well. The danger for all of us is to come and learn the word of God week after week after week. And because of the pressure that we feel from each other, and let me me say this, some of that pressure is really good. It's called accountability. It's good to have accountability and keep each other accountable for how we're living our lives before the Lord. That's needed. That's biblical. But when it gets to the point that the only reason we're doing what's right according to what the word of God says is to appease those around us, then something's off. Because what we need, what the children of Israel needed here was not more outward pressure. What the people of children needed at this particular word was an inward compulsion and conviction to do what is right. Listen, parents, I've said this. I'm going to say it again. We're not about raising up good kids here at Celebration. You're like, man, what are you you talking about? That's why we're here is to raise good kids. We want good kids. That's That's not what this is all about. We don't want good kids. We want redeemed kids. We want regenerate kids. We don't want kids that know how to play the system. We don't want the kids who come to church and look like good boys and girls and feel like they're right with God because they're not doing all of the bad things when inside their heart is genuinely wicked because the moment that pressure is off, they're going to pursue that wickedness. And so the danger here is for true regenerate salvation. So that you and I, whether we're under the pressure to conform and to do what is right or not here at church, or whether we're long off in a dark room somewhere else, we do what is right. Why? Because God's done a work inside of our heart. God has the Holy Spirit residing in us and we've been regenerated. It's a desire for us to pursue him from an inward compulsion, not just outward pressure. You tracking with me on that? So we see our need here. There's a need to respond. There's a need for true salvation. Second thing we wanna see in the text is this, is, is we see the use of God's people the use of God's people. In verse 4, we're to be introduced to the fourth judge of Israel. And this judge is completely different than all the other judges because this judge is, well, a female. Go women, right? Women powers. So let's read about her here in verse 4. The Bible says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now Deborah was different than all the other judges, not simply because she was a woman, but because she was far more brain than she was brawn. Up to this point, all the judges, they freed the people just from sheer might and sheer power and force. They used daggers and ox codes. She doesn't use any of that. In fact, she doesn't lay a hand on anybody. She has her influence of directing God 's people through her godly wisdom and through her godly counsel. And so it's amazing that the Bible says that, that people from all over Israel, she would sit underneath a palm. It was called the Palm of Deborah. You know you've sat at that palm a lot when they begin to name, the palm tree after you, right? The Palm of Deborah. And people from all over the country would come to her and, and seek wisdom from her and have them judge their cases and solve their conflicts. Now, one of the things we need to understand, maybe you haven't been here before, but let me, let me repeat this just in case. One of the keys that we find in all of the judges that we read about Israel is they serve as a type of Christ. Okay, and what that means is they kind of foreshadow the coming Messiah, the real Redeemer, the real Savior who is to come. So every time we study them, we see a different element or aspect of Jesus Christ who is ultimately going to come and bring true spiritual salvation to his people. And if that's the case, then what we see in Deborah is that Deborah is probably a more clear and accurate picture of Christ than any of the other judges. Here's why, and get this because she not only saves the people, she reigns over the people. And see, this is what a picture of true salvation is. True salvation is not just simply asking Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins so I can get out of hell, so I can get into heaven. That's not it. But that's what our culture believes. The true aspect of salvation is not only that God will get you out of hell, pay for your sins, take away the wrath of God that is rightfully yours and mine, that's that's building up against us for the day of judgment. That's only part of it. The other part is that he not only saves us from our sins, but he reigns over us. That he, we listen and we submit to his counsel, that we follow him and say, God, not my way, but your way. So she's a demonstration of, of what Christ is like, what true salvation is all about. In fact, when you learn about Deborah here, you can't help but think of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Here she is governing the people, counseling the people with her great wisdom, bringing peace to the people. And then listen to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, speaking of the coming Messiah, Jesus says, the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, and prince of peace. Do you see the connection? So what Deborah was used for here was not only to be used to bring salvation to God's people, But she was also, her life was meant by God to demonstrate what the ultimate Savior would be like. But she's not alone in God using her. God also uses a man by the name of Barak. God, aren't you, guys, aren't you glad that God can use men too? All right? So so not only women, but also men. Now, notice this. We want to take just a couple minutes and look at this conversation that goes on between Deborah and Barak, all right? We we see this play out in verse 6. Deborah comes to him and she begins to speak to him in verse six, follow along. It says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you Go gather your men of Mount Tabor, of Tabor taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's uh, army. Now, this is her speaking on behalf of God. To meet you by the river of Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. She goes, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his hills, and Deborah went up with him. Now, let me explain what's going on here. Commentators are kind of divided on whether we're supposed to take this negatively or positively. Some say that this this conversation between Deborah and Barak is actually to be viewed as negative, that it actually demonstrates that Barak is lacking in faith. Uh, And here's how they break it down. They said when she comes, it sounds like she's reminding him what God has already commanded him of, right? So he's not doing what God had already told him to do. So she confronts him again. Then he says, okay, well, I'll do what God's telling me to do as long as you go with me. Again, showing a weakness of faith. He needs mommy to hold his hand to go to battle, right? And so so it shows a weakness. Then they interpret it as negative. When she says, okay, I'll go with you, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, the way that they interpret that is what God is saying is, okay, man, You go and do what you want to do, but God is not going to bless you and use you to the magnitude that he was originally going to use you. He's going to use a woman to do it instead because you blew it. So they say it's a demonstration of a a lack of faith in God and obedience. If that's the truth, if that's what the text is saying, then I'd say, you know, see point one, that we have a need to respond in obedience to God, all right? But I don't think it's meant to be negative. I think it's actually positive. I think Barak is actually a picture of great faith, wonderful, godly faith. Let me let me break this down for you. I think when when she comes to him and she says uh, she says to him first that the road on which you are going, all right, will not lead you to um, yeah, will not lead you uh, for your glory. Okay, when she's when she's telling you all this, when she's telling what's going to happen, when she says that he it it won't lead to his glory, but instead uh, a woman is going to take uh, Sisera's life. She's just being prophetic. She is a prophetess, right? And what do prophetesses do? They tell the future. They foretell the future. So she's not rebuking him. She's just simply saying, hey, look, I'm glad that you're going to be obedient to God. I'm going to go down there with you. You're going to fight the army. But just so that you know, you're not going to take the life of Sisera. Instead, a woman is going to ultimately take that. Just want to let you know how this is all going to go down. So he's not rebuking. Instead, uh, she's just telling him what's going to happen. Now, Why would I say that this is a man of great faith? First of all, I would say that he's a man of great faith uh, simply because um, when when, when Deborah comes to him and begins to talk with him and he says, I'm not gonna go unless you go with me, I think I would have done the same thing because she is a woman who represents God. For her to be with him is to have God with him. For her to go with him means that God who speaks to her is available for him to be able to speak at any time. If you're going into battle, you want to be able to refer to God and her being with her gave him that opportunity. So he was a man of the word. He was a man of great faith. It showed strength, not weakness. Not only that, it also shows that it was a great faith uh, because, um, because of what it was that he was willing to do. Now, he's supposed to take 10,000 men, and he's supposed to go and fight 900 iron chariots. That means nothing to us, except for, understand this, militarily, it's suicide. Uh, 10,000 men lose to to 900 iron chariots 100% of the time. This is a military man. He knows it. He knows what God is calling him to do on paper is ridiculous, is foolish. Nobody goes and does this, but yet... He's willing to trust God, even in what God is calling him to do, being impossible. Let me say one more thing. Not only does he have faith, not only is it a great faith, but it's also a humble faith. And this is what I really want you to be able to see. She says to him, I want you to go. I want you to lay your whole life on the line. I want you to fight a great peril to yourself. But here's the idea. You're not going to get any glory for what you ultimately do. And he chooses to do it. He chooses to do it. Now, what I want you to see first of all in this is that he is very much a picture of Christ who is to come, just like Deborah. Just like Deborah, he represents Christ to come. Who else demonstrated this incredible, humble faith in the Father more than Jesus Christ? The Bible says he's willing to come, he's going to fight against the gates of hell, and he's willing to do it at great expense to himself. He would ultimately give his life in obedience and submission to the Father, but he's willing to do it how? In pure humility. The Bible says in Philippians 2 verses 6-8 that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what we see here is we see that both of these people, God's people, are used of God not only to lead others to salvation, but what's the other thing? To show the world what Christ looks like. Now, I think in the heart of all of us, anybody who's been truly born again, I believe in our hearts God places a desire for us to be used for his glory. Yes? we want to be used we want we we want our finances our our material our our minds our abilities everything we have to be used to reach people for christ and we want to be used in a great way for the kingdom of god amen that that's that's what god has placed inside of us so how can we be sure that god's going to use us in that way well let's follow this just for a minute first of all listen let me encourage you to be people of the book Let me encourage you to sit there and understand what God says and say, I'm not gonna go right or left without God clearly telling me through his word. Whatever his word says, I'm gonna do. And I'm gonna do it even at great peril to myself, even at great expense. I'm gonna work, I'm gonna serve. I I, I might be battered, I might be bruised in my service to other people, but I'm willing to do it. Even the things that seem radically insane to do, I'm gonna be obedient to God. And then here's the idea. Put it all on the line and say, and it doesn't matter if I get any glory or recognition for doing it at all as long as God is glorified for it. I think that's so important because, because I, I got to tell you, I know every single one of us in here, when we serve, there is an aspect of us that we want to be recognized for our service. And sometimes people in churches or in our homes, we sit there and go, you know, people just don't appreciate me. They're not doing what they're, what, what they're calling me to do. What God's calling us to do is sit there. And, and I love this. I love the word that he gives when she says to him, when she said, this road will not lead to your glory. I I, I got a word for you, this road of salvation that we are on, pursuing Jesus, serving Jesus, this road does not lead to our glory. It leads to the glory of Jesus Christ. You with me? Amen? Third thing we want to look at, and this is the awareness of God's people. We see the need of God's people, Uh, In in the first section, we see those needs. Uh, We also see, uh, excuse me, uh, the use of God's people. And finally, we want to take a look at the awareness of God's people. Well, it's all this talk about these judges, it's very easy for us to begin like, I'd like to be like one of those judges. I'd like to be like her. I'd like to be like him. And it's not all wrong. But what we need to understand is it's not the people who are making all of this happen. That God is behind the scenes through his sovereign will bringing all this, creating all this, and bringing all this about. And what I love about it is Deborah was aware of it. Barak was aware of it. That's what's important to understand. They don't think they're all that in a bag of chips. They understand they're just being obedient to God, but God gets the glory for all that's happening. When in the beginning, Deborah says again to him, she says, has not the Lord of God Israel commanded you? From the beginning, she says, this is God's plan, not our plan. Then she continues on, and, she, and when she's speaking on behalf of God in verse seven, she, goes, she says to him, she goes, and I will draw out Sisera. It's God who's gonna draw him out. God, the the armies are called to go. God's gonna get Sisera exactly where he wants him to be at the exact same time. God's working all this out sovereignly. Are you tracking with that? Then later on in in the scriptures in verse 14, Deborah said to Barak up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Do you see God at work? Do you see that? then, Then in verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword they recognize and they are aware that even though they're doing all of this work, it's ultimately God that's doing the work through his sovereign will, making it all possible. And what I love is that they're aware of it. Now, the question is, how did they see God work here? How are they seeing him work? Where where do we see God do this? Well, it's very subtle, but I I wanna draw your attention to it. Go back, just, just work with me. We're gonna close with this. Go back, if you will, to verse seven. See in verse seven? She says, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Laban's army, to meet you by where? The river Kishon. You see that? He says, you just be where I tell you to be. I'm going to make sure that they're by the river Kishon, and that's where you're going to attack your enemy. You make sure you're there. I'll make sure the enemy's there at that that time and at that place. He says, okay. Now, notice this. When you come back down to verse 15, It says, at the end of it, it says, And Sisera got down out of his chariot and fled away on foot. So what happens is, Barak comes, they destroy all of the enemy, and Sisera realizes, i got to get out of here or I'm going to be killed too. But did you notice it's kind of funny? He makes a fast getaway, but not in his chariot. He makes a uh, fast getaway on foot. Now, I don't know about you, but if I need to get away somewhere quick, I'd take my car not run. Okay, And so why is he doing this? Well, we find out exactly what it was that God was doing in chapter five. See, chapter four is the history of all that God has done. Chapter six is really a poem of praise to God by these two judges, to God telling of all that he did. Now, let me draw your attention to two verses. One, look at chapter five in verse four. It says, the Lord, when you went out from Seir." When you marched from the Legion of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And verse 21, it says, and the torrent Geshon uh, swept them away. Here's what was going on. These guys do what God calls them to do. They go down to the battle. They realize very well that they are completely outman, out-military, but they do in faith what God has called them to do. So they get down to the battlefield. They see All these 900 chariots, they're trying to be obedient to God, but inside they're like, we are dead men, right? And so what happens? All of a sudden, it begins to rain. And as it begins to rain and trickle and rain harder, this river Gashant begins to rise up and it begins to flood, and it begins to overflow its banks, and it overflows its banks exactly where these chariots are to the point where the chariots get stuck in the mud. The reason that Sisera runs is because his chariot ain't working anymore. So that which was a military advantage for them is taken out by God by him sending something as natural rain to get them stuck in the mud. And what I love about this is that the author of Judges, and in both of, uh, of the judges that were there, both Deborah and Barak, they are aware that it's God that sends the rain. No, okay, let's go back. You guys are like... I s- I'm still not getting it. All right, let me say it this way. You and I are down at battle, okay? We're down there. We know we're going to get our heads kicked in. There's no way we're, we're beating 900 chariots. All of a sudden, we're like, okay, men, today we are going to die. Let's do this thing. And all of a sudden, it begins to rain. Oh, great. Not only am I going to die, but now I'm going to catch pneumonia, right? It's going to rain, this is not, I don't like rainy, it's going to be muddy, it's gross. It begins to rain. But the more it begins to rain, they begin to understand that the rain is bringing to their advantage. And the enemy, the what they had, is now longer, is, is just neutralized completely. And they go and they wipe them completely out. And they recognize that it's God that's doing it. But did you notice? It's through something very natural that God is working supernaturally, and they were aware enough to recognize it. I think some of us might just kind of be sitting back going, you know, isn't that really crazy? Isn't that nuts that, that, that they couldn't even use their chariots because of the rain? Of all the times it's gonna flood, can you imagine what are the chances of it flooding then? Many of us may by- bypass it altogether as happenstance, as chance or whatever. These folks understood that it was an act of God as natural as it seemed. They knew that God was working supernaturally. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, close friend of mine this last week, um, he, he, he had told me, he said, Mike, he goes, listen, we're starting a new business uh, um, without like regular income. We're, we're trying to get some some clients to be able to work and get some income coming in. And he says, but I did my bills and I'm gonna be $400 short this month. Almost $400, not quite, but almost $400 short this month. And he goes, man, he goes, um, he goes, he goes, and so I started praying, and he goes, I, I want to ask your opinion on something. And I said, well, that was good. I'm glad that you prayed. And, and he says, well, two days after I prayed, I got a check in the mail. It was an escrow check um, for $400 that we had overpaid in our taxes in our house. And he goes, so, so, and of course, I'm ready to leap up and go, thank Jesus. Here's his question. My question was, is, you think that's God? Or do you think that's just chance? Now, now, listen to his logical thinking. He's like, I overpaid all year. Whether I had that bill or need or not, I was still going to get that $400 because I had been overpaying the taxes all year long. And he goes, so if, if I didn't have the need, I was going to get it. And he goes, so, so is it just happenstance that it happens? And I sit back and I go, brother, it's not happenstance, man. I go, it is God knowing your need and working all things together and him meeting your need in a supernatural way, in a way that seems so unbelievably natural. Sometimes you wonder even if it is God. And I said, and the bottom line is, the Bible teaches us, if that happens to you, brother, bottom line, every good and perfect gift comes from above. You can be assured it's God. But here's the question, do we recognize it? Because as believers all the time, this is me, even with our church, God, God, I gotta see you move. God, I, I, I need to see you move. I need you to do something. But if I would just read the word and have a little bit better theology, God is saying, there's never a moment or second that I'm not doing something. In fact, it's not only, in fact, Mike, I'm holding you together so that you don't explode into all eternity right now. I'm keeping the world spinning perfectly on its axis at the exact same rate so you don't fly out into the universe and burn up into the sun. I'm constantly working. He's not just doing a few things, he's doing a million things at one time. But here's the bottom line you and I aren't often aware that God is constantly doing it, but yet the people of God were you know, let, let, let me sum up with this, you know, what do we do with the end of this story? You, okay, so here's what happens. They defeat them. The prophetess is exactly right. Sisera gets away, gets out of his get, gets out of his uh, chariot. He runs. He starts running north, and as he begins to run north, um, there's a woman there named Jael, and he knows her. She, he knows her husband. Uh, it talked about it over in verse 11. Uh, her husband and he were had peace with one another, and so he runs up there. He sees a friendly face. She says, Hey, 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 what are you doing? Hey, I'm running from the battle. Psst, in here. Come on in here, sugar. It's all good. Come on in. It's good. It's good. Come on into the tent. It's good. You know, I know you. You know me. You know you're a good person. You just come in here. You don't worry. You hide. Look, here's a nice rug. Now, by the rug, what they would do, they would put it on floors, but when it was cold, they would also cover up with that rug as well, and so she says, you just, look, you're tired. You're exhausted. You just go night-night right over here and put you, get you all snuggle bug. Look at you all beside yourself. You just need to calm down. Mama's right here with you. You just relax a little bit, and he says, can I have a little bit of drink? A little bit of drink, Can I have a little bit of water? He goes, ah, you don't need no water. You know what you need? You need your, a nice belly of warm goat milk. That's what you need. So she brings him some goat milk, and it's all warm, and he's all warm and fuzzy. He's like, thank you so much. He's about to, to fall to sleep, and then he quickly turns, and he says, hey, listen, if anybody comes to the door, make sure that you tell them that I'm not here. Don't you worry about it, sugar. Don't you worry a thing. You just go to sleep. I'll take care of everything. Goes to sleep, deep sleep. She tiptoes over to the toolbox, grabs the hammer, grabs the spike, tips toes over, and drives it through his temple into the ground. Nailed it, right? right. I mean, what do you do with that? At the end of the story, go home, God is good, all right? What do we do with that? And here, here, here's where I find. It reminds me of what Romans teaches us. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? Is death. This man is a clear figure of sin in this place. He's, he's admonished. He's, he, he's, he's gone after God's people. He's oppressed God's people. He's going to pay for his sin against God and against their people. What's happening to him is rightfully so. He deserves to die. All of us deserve to die who have sinned against God. Amen? Amen. All of us are deserving of death in hell for all eternity, but here is a man who deserved it. But you can't stop and think and talk about a man, a general, uh, the leader of the armies, uh, the leader of armies being impaled and and hammered, a a spike through his flesh without stopping and thinking about a future commander of the armies of the Lord who would come, whose name is Jesus, whose hands and feet, not head so much, but hands and feet are pierced with... a hammer and with this rail that goes through his arms and through his feet but the difference between these two leaders is that whereas one was deserving dying for his sin the second was innocent dying for the sins of his people so there's the picture there we see a fallen leader dying deserving of death with spikes through his head we see the spikes of thorns we see the spikes through hands and feet pointing to our savior lord in jesus christ here's the question God is always working for our good, always working for our good, always being generous to his people at all times. The question is, where do we see it? Are we aware of it? The greatest example of his goodness occurred 2,000 years ago on that cross when he died for you and I. If he did that, you can be assured he's going to take care of the rest. But the question is, are you aware of what he did? Are you aware of what he did? See, I know that we have folks here that you've been in church, you've been in church for a long time, you might even be visiting for the long time, I don't know where you are. You believe you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, but let's just really be honest. You sit there and you're not truly aware of the reality of the cross. You're not, you're not, you don't understand the reality, that, 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 that your need for Christ dying on that cross in your place as a substitute. You need to be driven to the pro- cross. But all of us who are truly born again, the same thing is, I'll ask this, you're living your lives, but are you aware of the cross? Are you aware of the gospel? Are you living your life in light of the gospel truth that we know to be true? That's the answer this morning. Let's, I'm gonna ask Ashley to come, and, and let, me, let me just break this down for you. Let's, let's close our eyes, bow our heads. I'm just gonna ask you a couple questions. Look, uh, he, he, here's, here's what we need to do. Some of us have a great need to respond to God some of you, right where you are, maybe not even through this message, but in other areas of your life, you know that God is speaking to you. You know you need to respond and be obedient to what God's calling you to do. And he's saying it graciously as hard as it is for you to do. He's leading you to do it so that you won't be oppressed by the same issue later. What is it? Repent. Turn. Obey. As difficult as it is. Likewise, there, there's some people here that that desperately want to be used of God. But listen, you're not going to be used of God unless you get to the point where you're humbly serving God and saying, it's not about me. It's about you. Maybe some of us have felt just a little bit unappreciated lately and maybe we've been pouting a little bit, maybe even don't want to serve, maybe in our home or church or wherever it is and we're kind of feeling kind of down. That's an area for us to be able to repent and say, God, this road that I'm on will not lead for my glory, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And finally, some of us need to just sit back and say, God, I've been wanting to see you work and I don't see you work, but by faith, I recognize. God, give me the awareness of your moving each and every day. Open up my eyes to see.